Welcome back to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, the motivational poster in your ear. I'm your host, Tim Alanius, VP of Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. In this episode, we're going to be diving into cross-border selling, unlocking the power of knowing your customer and cultural nuances. To discuss this, I'm excited to be joined today by our special guest speaker from Digital River, Emily Burton, the VP of Partner Enablement. Emily brings a powerful, holistic perspective to e-commerce, having delivered solutions from back to front for clients. With a career spanning 20 years in the space and through consumer and client-facing roles, very critical point there, encompassing everything from technical operations and quality assurance to both program and implementation management. Emily has helped some of the world's top brands from mid-market to enterprise develop, implement, and deliver high-quality e-commerce consumer experiences at scale. Emily, welcome to the show today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Very excited. Yes, very exciting. And I'm excited for our topic today, too, with cross-border selling, unlocking the power of knowing your customer and cultural nuances. I think just kind of before we dive fully into that, let's talk a little bit about the past and how we've seen e-commerce grow towards this aspect and maybe why e-commerce was a bit more uh, non-cross-border overall. So definitely interested in your thoughts there and kind of understanding that customer perspective overall for it. I think one of the things that we need to remember when we look at the history of e-commerce is thinking about it as springing out of retail, right? But it had this fundamental difference from retail that I don't think we fully grasped early on and that eventually has grown to allowing things like globalization and better shipping methods and things like that to unlock cross-border a whole lot more than it used to be. When we think of retail, we would go into a store, we would handle the item, there might be a show, uh, showroom demo item you could look at. Uh, there was ways to figure out exactly what you were buying, what you were gonna get for that. And when we shifted to e-commerce, when it was brand new, which actually I was dealing with end consumers downloading from the internet, back when downloading from the internet was something foreign to most of us, it was a whole different transaction. Suddenly, instead of buying software, what you're actually transacting in is trust. And that was the biggest hurdle up front was just getting consumers to trust even to put payments online, right? Oh, gosh, that's really scary. So you had to first start essentially where people already trusted the Internet. They already trusted the sources they were getting, et cetera. And, and you kept close to home because that's what you knew and that's what they knew. And it worked very well um, to start. And actually, onshore was considered really the best way to go around the world if you could. because you could be from the place that they were and it was gonna be less expensive for you and things like that because we didn't have the infrastructure we have today to be able to ship worldwide, to warehouse worldwide, to distribute your inventory all over the world. And so it was just really hard to figure out how to get it to individuals, you know, or it took days, weeks to get across the world. So it's a huge change from that to now. And part of it had to do with building that consumer trust. Consumers had to trust buying online first, and then we could trust that particular brand of buying from that brand or that brand. That's why marketplaces were able to kind of take a hold early because they had a lot of influence. So they got a lot of trust really early. It worked for me. It'll work for you. And so brands had to start working on how do I build that trust with my consumer? And it's easier to do at home. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think as we we look at that past right to your point, where logistics has come for the delivery of that e-commerce, the physical goods, we'll start with those, but then even the digital goods now mm -hmm. that are happening and, and transacting, 
the availability based on multilingual availability is that content created in that uh you know uh, native language for that country is, is is the currency also and the currency rates the payment processors all came into play with all of this as they grew and expanded and mm-hmm. and their technology evolved into what it is today and so that natural growth right i think it was also to to your point that marketplace mindset that really started to change the opportunity in both the consumer and the business minds of what mm-hmm. they could really be doing. Um, I know drop shipping when I first got started in e-commerce a, a long time ago. I, I I talk in decades now for my career. So overall, <laughs> uh, you know, when I first started with that, it's like, hey, wow, we we just transacted one product. That's amazing. Uh, and then you moved mm-hmm. into digital. Well, digital came with all sorts of other requirements. And then you had all the different devices. So we had to evolve with that in the technology and the delivery uh, mechanisms overall. But Logistics and, and cross-border selling and a lot of the international e-commerce clients I've uh, consulted and, and worked with, there's so many also uniquenesses to either regions or countries specifically when it comes to taxes, when it comes to shipping and delivery, uh, COD, right, cash on delivery and, and the way that that works in certain areas of the world that don't work at all like they do here. So if you are looking to grow and, and, and move to this cross-border mindset, you have to learn a lot of things or partner with someone who understands those uh, nuances overall alongside of and I think one of the other things is we used to just build websites back in the day very static they're not as dynamic as they are they're not personalized like they are today and it was easier right and you would create that and you'd put mm-hmm. it up there and and there wasn't much uh, creativity thought behind all of them now it's a very big part of that and that goes to cultural nuances where we have to think about the colors that are represented because they mean different things in different cultures. And, mm-hmm. you know, utilizing uh, certain words and phrases completely means something different in another region than they might do in your business's original uh, location. So all of that comes into play with the cross-border selling. And when, when we go through that, I think it's just it's essential now for any business's growth strategy. We are not landlocked anymore, maybe from a services perspective. But when you start looking at the ability to sell your product or good anywhere in the world, you should have that as part of your growth strategy. So as, as we kind of look at what's happening now, right, we've got, we got that, you know, coverage of the past, kind of where we were, where we are today and what we're looking at. Um, and, and I really want to focus on, you know, the cross-border aspect of it. What are you seeing as kind of the not only the benefits, but maybe the, the unique ways that people are addressing it for their business? Sure. And it has evolved. You mentioned colors, for example. And, you know, probably a decade ago, I was working with a very large brand. They were selling digitally into 239 countries or something like that. And they had marketing come up with a a holiday campaign. And as they kind of took that to their global teams and, you know, got feedback, they found out that the colors in their holiday campaign weren't going to resonate in Asia in particular, because they would have a very different meaning. And so they needed to change up some things. And at that time, as you mentioned, kind of where we came from and where we went to, we had to develop different themes for different countries and different languages. And it became, suddenly, you're not just translating into a language, you're changing the checkout form. You're offering different payments. You're offering a different currency. You're changing the nuance in the language. You're French in Canada is translated different than your friends in France. Mm -hmm. And you make those nuances important 
and your customers will notice, right? Again, we mentioned transacting and trust. And what we know today is that, you know, studies have shown that up to something over 60% of customers find the customer experience more important than price. So if you're not, you know, you kind of said this is like, it's critical, you gotta do these things. If you're not at least paying attention to nuance of language, making sure you do have those different translations where the different similar but different languages are spoken, um, things like that, you're probably missing out on an opportunity. I think the other thing that we, we tend to see today as a business that is starting right now to, to get even more granular is as a business, we tend to think in regions. I'm going to do this in Europe. I'm going to do that in Southeast Asia. I'm going to do that in North America. But it's not quite that blocked. Not everybody in Europe, for example, prefers the same payment methods. While they might share a common currency across the EU, there's different preferences for digital wallets. There's different preferences for uh, bank transfer and things like that. So those vary country by country. You'll see a different level of of adoption in Germany than you will in France. And so if we're only thinking about the EU and the only nuances I care about are language, I'm missing out on something. And I'm not offering that last little bit that will bring in the rest of that market in, in a specific country. So it, it gets very granular today. And that's some of the trends we've started to see with some of our customers across the board is how do I get that last little bit of one specific market? Now that I've got kind of a baseline, you know, how do I get that? Or better yet, there still are customers going through kind of a global transformation, right? Mm -hmm. They they haven't done cross-border selling before. They don't know what it is. And you mentioned all these things that you have to consider and you have to bring a partner in to figure out and all of those things. And all of those nuances start to play into how do I display that to my customer, right? One of the most common reasons that customers will abandon a cart is unexpected fees or, or unexpected higher price. If you're not displaying your price prior to the cart in the way that is culturally expected by your consumer, that's gonna look like you brought them a higher, an unexpected higher price. So, you know, inclusive, tax inclusive pricing and the ability to display that is so critical in Europe, whereas in the US, consumers are used to tax being added later. Yeah. Oh yeah, tax and shipping, I'll figure those out later. Add it to the cart to see the price, right? We're used to seeing that these days. Oh yeah, absolutely. And your comment about trust and, and, and what you talked about at the very beginning is so critical here because the other expectation, and it, it definitely comes into everything that you just talked through is that experience, right? And the, the customer experience and how it is trying to be as frictionless as possible, informing them as directly as possible, because I, I, I can attest, I have bought from a better customer experience site, even knowing that it's a higher price because it was an easier path for me to get through to transaction. And I've also had international sites where we've, you know, my wife and I always have to mention her on my podcast for some reason. It's just like an innate thing in my head. But uh, overall, she was purchasing something for one of our boys the other day. And it was a specialized pair of sneakers. And it's from an international site. And I'm kind of, she at least knows to kind of say, hey, you're in the business. Maybe I should consult you. Is this site legit? <laughs> so that's the first question I hear is, is this site legit? And I'm like, oh boy. I'm like, so I'm trying to take a look at it. And I'm like, ah, well, you know, we'll risk it, but we'll use uh, an online payment provider that PayPal to make it a little bit more secure in the transaction because I'm not going to go and put my credit card on that site. And so by being mm -hmm. able to have that payment option of PayPal available, 
gave me another level of trust, even though the customer experience was really bad. And my son loves the customized shoes. So it's just like, there's that give and take that the customer will always have that you as a business, no matter how greatly designed your site is or how much effort you put into a customer journey mapping exercise, if you're not resonating with your end consumer, that effort doesn't matter, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And that's the trust mm-hmm. factor. You, and that trust is built, whether it's a great design experience or it's a great messaging or if it's the great just delivery time and clarity on pricing. You have to keep all those in mind when you're going through that. And, and that goes into personalization. I think this is where Amazon and Netflix and all these big consumer companies, right, that have set an expectation level. Shipping is one of the worst ones because of Amazon. I literally can go onto their site. Now, I have other comments about them too, uh, but I can go onto their site and I can get pretty much most of the things I need. If it's not within two days, it's within a day or the same day at this point. And now, granted, yes, I live near Chicago, so I'm near a lot of their you know distribution hubs, but the amount of inventory that they are then having to manage and keep on hand and the logistics, I'm like, But that expectation for me as a consumer now is like, oh, wait, that's going to take four days. You have to communicate that. And I definitely know that over the past couple of years with the logistics issues that happened during the pandemic, that was a big impact to brands where loyalty suddenly Mm -hmm. became a bigger focus with existing customers. Because when they had that logistics problem, it became, sorry, I'm going to go to whoever has it available now. And that messaging had to be very clear. I've talked about that in the past with a, a couch purchase and, and everything. And But I'm, I'm going to digress off my own tangent here. I talked about tangents with you before we started recording. And here I am going down a nice, fun tangent path. So uh, let's let's go back to that personalization aspect, right? We, we've talked about colors. We've talked about messaging. Payment options. I think this is a critical one for cross-border. And you alluded to this with mm-hmm. the expectations like in Germany versus in France or wherever it might be are critical. What are you seeing as just kind of the de facto standard of what needs to be there for the majority of cross-border commerce? For Especially for cross-border commerce. And um, when you get outside of North America and South America, you need to, to tap into even 50% of the market, you need to have additional payment methods. In Europe, you tend to see more preference towards things like bank payments, bank transfer. Um, whereas in Asia, we're seeing a lot of adoption of e-wallets, right? Mm -hmm. Digital wallets. And it's partly due to, you know, sort of regional preference and marketing and things like that. But then you also see differences across, let's say, Western versus Eastern Europe, that where banking practices are harder to gain access to, you see more things like prepaid cards or e-wallets pop up. You see Yandex in in Russia pop up, for example. Um, Whereas in Central Europe, where you see a lot of banking practices easily adopted, easily accessed, debit cards and and bank transfers tend to go up. Only 9% of like worldwide transactions in e-commerce last year happened on bank transfer, but they were primarily in Europe. We didn't see that across the world. So it kind of depends on what market you want to tap. If you're going everywhere, you want 200 plus countries, you definitely have to have a kind of a mix of each of those, right? Something that deals directly with a bank because people trust their banks. And if you trust their bank, if their bank trusts you, then they can trust you, right? You need to take credit and debit cards. And if somehow you've managed to find a processor who doesn't do both, you're, you're leaving yourself at a disadvantage because even inside of North America and South America, for example, you'll see a distinct difference in preferring credit card 
in North America because there's all these credit card bonuses that happen and people get their miles and all of that fun stuff. And in South America, you'll see some of the local bank cards are preferred because they offer installments. So when you want to make a big purchase, you can do installments to your local bank card. And it's not exactly a debit, but it's treated like a debit by processors. So knowing those slight cultural differences, make sure that you can accept not just, you know, Visa, MasterCard, but the local card brands as well become really important. And there's certain regions that if you don't have that one payment, kind of like you mentioned, PayPal made you trust that this is pretty legit. There's certain regions that if they don't see that one payment, they wonder if you're legit. They don't have the protections through their card that they would want, especially because you're international. And it kind of doubles if you can't sell it to them in their native currency, because now they're paying an FX Mm -hmm. uh, or foreign exchange uh, fee with their credit card, right? And they don't want to do that, but it's a hidden fee that they figure out later. And now it's eroding that trust with your brand. So if you can offer it in their native currency as well, that's even better. Yeah. But what if I'm an expat or I move around the world? I need to be able to choose my currency. Mm-hmm. And that's becoming more popular as well. I'm working for six months in Hong Kong, but I'm originally from Great Britain. So I want to order in GBP mm-hmm. on my GBP credit card. All right. We need to be able to accommodate those. And that can be the biggest challenge because we start with an assumption. You're coming in from this country with this language preference and we show you the certain thing. But if we can offer optionality to our consumers, they're much more likely to kind of come forward and say, you've got what I want. And just to throw one more stat out there that's kind of interesting was when you mentioned payment methods and preference, it's still as high as like 6% of consumers will abandon a cart. They've already decided to purchase because you didn't offer the payment method they wanted. I can't leave 6% of my revenue on the table. So I figure we mostly don't want to do that, even though it seems like a much smaller reason. It just plays into the larger question of trust. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's what I know we've referred to before as conversion killers, right? Where you hit mm-hmm. that point, they've committed, they've added a product to cart, they start the checkout process, and then you just lose them right there because of that. And by going back and, and, and through all this, especially with cross-border selling, the aspect of collecting data is key in order to continue that growth of your business and serving the customers in the right way. And, and that's going to mean that you're segmenting them based on that separate borders, right? So you do want to look at the data to say, how are they going through my site? Are they looking for certain information? Personalization, is it working within this country where I'm now starting to sell and collecting that data and using it to be data informed as you move forward? So, you know, one of the best ways that you can do that to understand the cultural nuances, but also try to improve upon anywhere that you have a conversion killer or friction in the, the, the journey is to talk to your consumers. So quick little feedback polls on your sites. I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, that's a distraction. Well, there's a lot of ways we can trigger them differently, but it gives us that data and insight. And you'd be amazed when you go into a new market, you ask it the right way. You get a lot of great feedback. You will get a lot of the negative feedback. You get a lot of people who like to make their voice heard and, 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 and you'll get those too. But honestly, for all the times that we have implemented tools like that and methods to collect that information, to hear directly from the consumer, it has been only valuable in the decisions that we're able to make. And especially as you enter new markets like this, making sure that the you know messaging is correct, uh, even before you launch it there, do some you know user acceptance testing and, and talk to people about, is this how we should phrase this? Because if you just take someone and you're within your own company and you're saying, hey, we're going from North America to Asia, there's a lot of differences in the way that the cultures communicate. 
uh, colors. Mm-hmm. I, I experienced the same thing with Asia. There's certain colors that you really do not utilize over there in your messaging and, 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 uh, and then photography too. Um, when you make that native to that area or appropriate to the business and what you're talking about, that resonates so much more and that builds that trust mm-hmm. up. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is we kind of look at just overall, I, I would say if I had to pick a theme out of what we've talked about, it's the trust that you have to build to make cross-border successful. Mm-hmm. 100%. And, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of the same kind of things that maybe some of them are obvious, language, color, um, those have started to be more and more understood and they're easy to study. But if you are doing studies on your checkout and you're trying to understand why you might have different conversion rates in different areas, take a look at your checkout form itself even. Some of the examples that we've run across in my in my history have been almost hilarious, right? When you label the fields exactly the same way in the US and in France or in Germany, for example, the label suddenly becomes tremendously long in comparison to what it was in US. Uh, and, and you put those two things together and it doesn't mean the same thing or it doesn't fit. And so now it looks unprofessional. And it, you know, up to 40% of consumers will leave if they feel your site looks unprofessional mm-hmm. and you haven't given them any other trust indicator, yeah. right? But also you mentioned data. We want a good amount of data about our sites. We wanna know where are they clicking? What are they filling in? Where did they stop? But are we collecting too much data? Do we have a field there that isn't relevant in their country? that they're expected to fill in? Do they typically not have postcodes where you're, mm-hmm. where you're shipping this? And so asking for one is just confusing. And so they leave. And it's something like a quarter of customers will leave if they find the checkout complicated. And so if you're asking for something that regionally they wouldn't expect or even you know directly they wouldn't expect, they're gonna question, what are you doing with my data? And now that trust comes into question. And what I found was interesting when I was kind of reviewing some of the trends that we're seeing, for example, in, in cart abandonment is that there was surveys done that had separate categories for things like complicated checkout, didn't have my currency or payment, uh, et cetera. And there was a separate one for trust issues. And in my mind, they all kind of come together. They're all eroding your trust in that brand that they're going to deliver what you want when you want it. So you're going to, like you said earlier, go to the place that has it now. Mm-hmm. And so we actually had a customer at one time that inside of their company developed region-specific teams who were all about developing the experience and the marketing and and how do we envelop our consumer in this region only. And they would find those nuances, what's different in the various parts of Europe, right? And there was a European team and it was made up of people they had in various offices in multiple countries. They brought in consultants, they found those pieces, they went that far, personalized their experience so that every time you came to the store, it was what you expected regardless of where you were from and what you might be looking for. Yeah. And Emily, you, the form conversation you just talked us through is is so key. That's what I've seen as well, where for me, even if you aren't dealing with cross border, but the forms and the way that the fields are structured for quickly capturing my information is critical for that just path of least resistance through. But then with that, mm-hmm. to your point, if I'm on a site, and especially a lot of these cross-border you know, e-commerce sites have separate sites in a sense for each of those specific countries, if that form doesn't change to be appropriate for that country and you go to a single checkout experience, that is so frustrating. And that, to your point, and in the stats, right, breaks that trust because they get through it and they've seen everything else personalized, 
And now they get a generic checkout that has all the standard fields for everyone across the way. It's, it's not appropriate. And you should take and use that so you default the currency. If you know they're from a specific country and you mm -hmm. have that currency available, immediately show it. Keep it through checkout. I've had experiences where I've started going through checkout. It showed me the currency in GBP, right? We'll, we'll talk about that. But all of a sudden in the checkout, it converts back over to USD. I'm like, what? Wait, what happened? And so it's just like this moment of pure disruption to that flow. And then what happens most likely? An abandoned cart because then I get distracted and I go off and I don't bother to complete my, my step there. Uh, with all that, I think that uh, another angle is understanding from that cart abandonment, it happens and we have ways to try and counter it. One is through uh, abandoned cart emails that go out. Well, there's a lot of times that you'll have a standard abandoned cart email cadence set up and you're going to have those come out like, you know, typical here in the U.S. is, you know, one hour after they abandon cart, direct an immediate email to them. Uh, maybe, you know, seven hours later, send one more and then, you know, two days later or whatever it may be. People will get trained by that, too. So if you start to offer incentives that, you know, two days out, well, yeah, I'll admit I'll leave stuff in my cart and wait for that 10 percent off and get another 10 percent off to complete my purchase. With that, though, is what is the timing that you should use when starting to enter that cross-border commerce? Because the way that we have the cadence here in the U.S. is going to be different than it is in Europe and different than it is in Asia or wherever. So keep that in mind, too, is the frequency of messaging is also a cultural nuance to understand so that you're not just, again, lumping everyone into one and sending that out. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to not just frequency of messaging, but like you said, what is the incentive to come back? Because mm -hmm. if I continue to offer, wait, don't leave before you leave the site, and then I give you an even better offer in email, are we all going to wait around, right? And, and some of that depends on the culture. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a there's a sense of urgency in certain cultures that doesn't exist in others. Right. And there's I mean, even just across the United States, you get the jokes about, you know, fast talkers in New York and leisurely surfers in California. And that sense of urgency of do I need this right now is what's really going to drive that purchase. So if the rest of your experience gives you that urgency, hopefully that timing will be kind of easier to figure out because you might not need it as often for one. No, absolutely. So as we, we look at everything we've talked about. Hopefully our audience is uh, understanding the benefit of looking at cross-border commerce and cultural nuances within your organizations if you aren't already addressing it. But even if you are addressing it, there's always room for improvement. Uh, there's a change also happening with generations. Uh, I've been talking about that a lot more with clients where we look at the generational research and as the generations are changing for your buyers, the experiences and expectations are changing as well. It used to be that you would have people who are more than willing to pick up a phone and call customer service. Now they expect a live chat experience or they want to do it via email and they don't want to talk to a person live. There's times where now uh, as much as long form content written is great from an SEO perspective, video is what's being consumed by more and more generations because they don't want to take the time to read through it. So while you need all the different types of content, you need to be aware of your audience and generationally look to be driving that personalized experience to each one of them, depending on your business and, and services and, and audience that you have specifically. I don't know if you have any other comments about that, but uh, that's one that I've been having a lot more yeah. discussion around. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot more. And there's some funny pieces about it that that I started to connect to even personally, like watching how my my own parents shop online versus how I shop online. 
versus how my nieces and nephews shop online, right? And even in that case, like you mentioned the content, right? What kinds of photos of your product are out there? And is it enough that if I'm used to going into a retail store and handling it, I'll get the same information, right? Mm -hmm. But if I am not used to going into a retail store and most of my commerce is actually socially driven, which is actually not only a trend in in certain generations like Gen Z and, and even millennials, social shopping is up compared to other generations, but it's also a trend that in like parts of Asia, social shopping is the number one way to yeah. consume e-commerce. And so when you look at it that way, well then videos, influencer type content is gonna make a better connection with that shopper. But then you add in you know, the layer of, I'm used to getting it now, okay? So now I have to have local distribution along with that great content and put all those pieces together and it kind of all you know, moves into one thing. And I think the last thing that I used to say this was, you, know, you can't live without it even 10 years ago, but now it's becoming even more true. You have to have a mobile responsive site. It has to, has to, has to be because so much of your shopping base is looking on their mobile device. And even if they don't purchase on their mobile device, they're shopping first there. They're looking on their phone. They're looking around. Yep. This is the one I want. I'm going to go get it later on my, on my computer, my tablet. And the abandonment rate on mobile devices is even higher because they're doing mostly looking. Mm -hmm. And if you can make that checkout super simple, just as simple as it is to interact with the social experience, then you're going to capture more of those mobile looky-loos and get them into actual purchasers. Because again, generationally, you're seeing more and more of that. And this is your bigger growing you know, consumer base that you need to appeal to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's where there's been some recent additions in the e-commerce space. And we did some efforts with the Amazon Buy with Prime and, and seeing the opportunity to directly on a product detail page purchase. Don't even add to cart. Like You just go through the purchase step immediately as an option because we have seen that shift. And so more and more solutions are coming forward with how do we look to give that immediate purchase to your point where we don't need to worry about building up a cart. That was e-commerce of the past. Now it is the, mm-hmm. hey, the faster we can get them to accept this product, I don't care if they're going to keep browsing my site and buy three more. Typically, that is a single purchase transaction for the majority of e-commerce sites nowadays. So we need to make sure that we're having that opportunity to give them that option. And if they still want to build a cart, then great. You still give that option. But now, just like payment methods, immediacy of Apple Pay on a site. Oh, you got me. I know my Mm -hmm. payment method. It's a trusted factor. It's easy for me. I don't have to fill out all that stuff. It's what PayPal used to be. But for some reason now... That digital wallet with Apple and uh, Google has completely changed the consumer's mindset. And the minute that we add that to sites now, it's amazing the switch to that payment uh, method. And so, again, to your point earlier, when you offer the right ones, expected ones, Mm -hmm. it helps retain that transaction and that customer, uh, their trust overall, because you're updating with what's changing in the technology space. As soon as you make it easier to purchase as well, you got to up your customer service game and you got to up your return policies. You got to up your game in both of those places because you're going to get a lot of mobile regret and you need to have a, a, a good way to handle those customers such that they'll remain loyal to your brand, right? Oh, I didn't mean to get the yellow one. I wanted the blue mm-hmm. one. And you know, all of that, if you don't have a good system in place to handle that in kind of like you were mentioning earlier, that immediacy in a smooth, easy way 
you're going to lose that brand loyalty in the long run. You know, it's amazing that as much as we want this thing shipped to us in, you know, today or tomorrow, um, we're willing to drive to the store to drop it off to return it. Mm-hmm. We'd rather do that than worry about, you know, figuring out how to get it to the UPS guy, right? And so that's that's somehow easier for us. And so if you have those options available, optionality doesn't just apply up front, it applies later. Mm-hmm. People abandon carts because of your return policy before they've even purchased. So when they see that it's easy to return, I can regret this later and it's okay, you're going to have even more conversion up front. Mm-hmm. And half the time, eh, it's easy to return, but I'll just give it to my sister. You yeah. know, it's, it's going to oh, work yeah. that way. Oh, yeah. Emily, and there's two two last topics I want to talk through with you before we have to wrap this up. But the first, just to what you were just talking about with upping your customer service game. While we talked about messaging, I think when we look at just the way that returns are a big part of e-commerce today, especially in the apparel industry, I'm, I'm going to pick on them now, but even the parts industry too, this happens a lot. People will buy multiple sizes because they're not sure. Mm-hmm. And when you approach cross-border commerce and, and cultural nuances, sizing is a big factor. And there's there's third-party providers out there who try and say that we'll give you most accurate fit possible. I'm trying to make sure I say it the right way without saying a name. And uh, with that, I, I still will do this where it's like, ah, I know I'm in between these two sizes. But sizes have also changed over the years, which is really interesting, at least for me. I don't know. Uh, I'm a husky guy. I'll use that word today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But with that and and, and my broad shoulders, I tend to have to go to different sizes and I'll find brands that I like. All right. You got my loyalty because you fit the right way. Well, all of a sudden, four years later, they change. And now I've got to find another brand for that. But when we start to do the cross border and I've bought things from Europe and so there's Europe sizing, U.S. sizing, be clear in your messaging and and especially on product detail pages. The way that you get the trust is when you have people who can also put reviews out there to say how it fits. And I've seen a lot more of this Mm -hmm. of late, but it's still not across the board of it's a true two size fit. Uh, If you want a little looser fit, buy a size up. So that type of even subtle messaging makes such a difference because you also reduce your returns and that helps with both customer satisfaction. It helps with your own business operations. So overall, that's my one point long winded and I'll, I'll let you comment on that in just a second, but I'm gonna throw the other one out there too. So you can comment on both Emily with regards to fraud. And one of the biggest fears as you go to cross border commerce is the fraud factor. And it's across the world at this point. I mean, when you look at the the credit monitoring companies and everyone who's you know willing to just completely say, yep, it exists. We all acknowledge it, but we'll just handle it behind the scenes. As a business, you have to focus on how you're going to handle fraud and the checks you can do. There's a lot of tools that can help with that. So I just, I'll give you those two. So the messaging, the sizing, the cultural nuances there, and then also with regards to fraud. Yeah, absolutely. And on your first point, I'm not a husky gentleman, but I can tell you that women's clothes probably have it even worse from what I've heard. Um, and I, I'm 100% with you. I generally will buy my own things based on, can I read a review or three that tell me that this fits well, uh, that it hits below the knee or whatever it is. And honestly, with the rise of social commerce and the rise of mobile commerce, the rise of importance of reviews is is even greater. So it goes back to kind of your timing and messaging, even if you do convert. When do you go back and ask them for a review on the product? When do you make sure that you've built up that content so that your consumers can trust from other consumers? They're buying more 
from what other consumers are telling them than what you're telling them most of the time these days, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of, and that's kind of the future we're headed towards. When it comes to fraud, uh, that's been a big part of my e-commerce life. As you mentioned early on, I did have an end consumer facing role to begin with, literally answered the phone and talked to customers that bought things and the terror in their voice when they believe there's an unwelcome charge on their card. So there's a couple of things to manage in that. One is make it clear how your charge is going to appear, whether that's on your confirmation email or whatever, but make it clear so that they're not calling you up and saying, oh my God, I think someone stole my card. And you're like, actually, did you buy a pair of jeans? Yeah, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And you don't want them to have that feeling, that panic, because now they, they're disgusted with you. Oh God, why didn't you just tell me that? Yep. So make it clear how that's going to appear and put that messaging you know, easy for them to find. Kind of a standard we've gone with for the last two decades is just always having the confirmation email. The charge will appear for this amount from this, and here's the descriptor. Mm -hmm. And that way it's really easy for me to know, oh, okay, I saw that, I, kn I know what that is. But then the second piece is make sure you have the right fraud partners in place. Fraud screening is it's almost too hard for any of us to do without a partner. Um, even if, if you've done it for two decades, it's often best to put a couple of pieces together and do them together, right? And there's, there's immediate checks that need to happen. There's kind of, you know, no sell list checks that need to happen. And all of those pieces can happen in a fraction of a second. But if you can add in a trusted manual review on top of that, that can really kind of boost the, the idea that you're not going to get a whole bunch of fraudsters in there trying to pull out your product, but also pay attention to how you're pricing your product locally. Is it competitive? Is it too cheap? Did you convert just straight from USD and that actually made it too cheap for the market? And that's why you're getting a lot of, it's not even actually fraud. It's just, we're going to purchase it and resell it. So you're mm -hmm. getting this kind of reseller transaction, which is not building your brand, right? And so pay attention to how you're pricing in the market as well, because that can deter those who are going to get a go with that scam because that's actually much more fruitful by the way because yeah. you're you're making legit purchases yep. it's harder to to get chargebacks and things against those but always have a really robust system that i would recommend always has a little bit of automatic and a little bit of manual screening available so that you can start to see patterns in how the transactions are coming in because every fraud ring i've ever encountered and i've encountered many because i've worked for some very big brands in consumer electronics and things like that they have patterns. There's a pattern of email address. There's a pattern of phone number. There's a pattern of location. There's a pattern of where the products are shipping or how they return them or don't, right? Yeah. Purchase the product, return a rock in the box, mm -hmm. right? Things like that. But even just adjusting your processes can help take care of that too, right? When do you issue the refund? Is mm -hmm. it after you've inspected that the product is back or is it once it's shipped? Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, clear messaging about that as well in the return process, mm -hmm. your refund will happen. Because again, if you don't see that, you expect it fairly quickly, typically, and it could just take a while to process depending on the situation. But yeah, completely agree. Payment processing times. Oh, That's yeah. often missed, especially in refunds, but it's also missed a lot in, in physical products when they sell cross-border in particular, it might take a minute before that product actually leaves the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And a lot of physical products charge when it leaves the warehouse, not immediately. And that can lead to that, oh my God, mm -hmm. somebody charged an extra thing yep. to my card because you saw the approval mm -hmm. and the charge came later. So be clear on that messaging as well. And usually the confirmation email is a good enough place for things mm -hmm. like, hey, this is how your charge is going to appear, or this is how long it'll take for your, your thing to ship and your charge to appear, or your charge won't appear until it ships, right? But to your point, 
the refund process up front will help me understand what's what's my expectation if I have regret here. Mm-hmm. How much are you going to trust me back? Yeah. Right? No, absolutely. And I, I love that you went and covered the explain who the charge is coming from, because that is one of the ones that I'll question. And, and I, I, I mentioned my wife earlier with the specialized pair of shoes. That was one of them. I caught, you know, again, a couple of weeks later when it actually shipped, I was like, what is this charge? It's from some name. I'm like, what is that name? Like, what is? And then it's like, I had to think for a moment. Then I'm like, oh yeah, we purchased this product. It's just shipped now. And so it's just one of those though, that it's so critical. And especially when you start to have as a business, a multi-country setup for commerce, a lot of times you're going to have an in-country business name that might not be the same as the main name that is doing the selling online. So that messaging has to be very clear. I call our not the confirmation email is one of the most critical ones uh, for what you were just saying, Emily, about the messaging. The confirmation page is also critical to tell that story because you have that immediacy of they just made the purchase. A lot of times, depending on the size of purchase, that's also in there kind of like, oh, gosh, I just purchased something. But you clearly tell them a story. I've had somewhere I can't even tell that it's a confirmation page. I'm like, wait, did that go through? So make sure we call it your most valuable page in an e-commerce uh, site is that confirmation page because that tells the story of what happens next, sets the rest of the expectations, which helps with customer service calls. Am I getting a call immediately? Cause someone's like, Oh wait, what, what just happened? Or this name just appeared on my credit card. What's that? And then even to the return process there, tell them, conf- you know, give them that trust. If you're not happy, if it doesn't fit, here's how you can return it and swap it or whatever it may be. So I love it. I love it. A great conversation today, Emily. Unfortunately, we do need to wrap up. And and so I have one last question for you. And this is kind of the future aspect. Where do you see cross-border commerce and, and selling and then also just cultural nuances in three three years or so? I used to go five, but three is probably more appropriate. What do you see as the next big shift in both those areas? Cross-border is still being tentatively adopted at this point, right? I firmly believe, and and you're right, five years is too far to look in e-commerce. Three years is probably enough at this point uh, with the way things change. But I firmly believe, and the pandemic kind of gave us a preview of this, that cross-border and global shopping will be ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. It will be just common. Right now, about half of shoppers, a little more than half, will say that they have shopped internationally in the last, you know, year. But it's like, 47% or something have shopped in the last three months. So it's picking up speed and it's just going to be so common. It's unquestioned. Mm -hmm. And that means that brands are going to have to, and this is, this is a term you hear all the time, but brands are going to have to be global, but look and feel local. And so no matter where I'm shopping from, it should feel local to me, but I, I know I'm buying from all over the world and that's fine. Right. And that's, we're absolutely headed in that direction. And just the amount of growth you've seen in the area, the emerging markets in, in Asia that are taking over e-commerce, to be honest. I mean, China was our biggest e-commerce uh, sales in 2022 across the world, right? And so paying attention to those cultural shifts and how they'll bring the rest of the industry along in the next three years, that's going to be the key to successful in that ubiquitous market there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love it, Emily. So as you've all just heard, from Emily Burton, VP of Partner Enablement from Digital River. We want to be global, but feel local when it comes to our commerce online moving forward. 
Uh, I love it, Emily. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, great conversation, great areas of just where we can learn from the growth of e-commerce and what we're seeing across the uh, industry, but also looking to apply much more of that personalized feel for that end consumer to build that trust, which is so critical overall in the space. Uh, so thank you for being on the show today and I look forward to some future conversations as well and uh, maybe bring you back and, and see where that growth for Be Global but Feel Local goes. I'd love to. I had a great time. Wonderful. And for all of you listening, thank you for tuning into the future by listening to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast. For more information about the topics discussed today, check out the description of this episode. As we look to receive any feedback from you, please send it to us via email at lessons for tomorrow at americaneagle.com let us know if you have an idea for a future topic to cover be sure to follow us wherever you listen to us whether that's youtube or podcasts different solutions give us a rating because those stars they do matter at the end of the day though i want to thank americaneagle.com studios for hosting and giving us this opportunity to talk to you about the future of global commerce cross-border selling and cultural nuances have a great day.